I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Uh, three guests this week. We wanted to uh, do something that was on the news, so I brought in uh, Boston Globe Sports Media writer Chad Finn and Sports Business Journal Assistant Managing Editor for Digital Austin Carp to talk about Tom Brady and Greg Olson. Tom Brady retiring today as we tape this Wednesday, February 1st, and what that means for Fox, what that means for Greg Olson. We go pretty deep into that as well as talk about the NHL viewership numbers this year for ESPN and TNT, which are way, way down. I think you'll find that interesting if, uh, if you haven't heard about that. And then we get into uh, uh, Bobby Hall in relation to uh, writing about people who, um, while they were incredibly, uh, they had incredible careers in athletics, could also be just really awful human beings away from athletics. And so we get into sort of covering that. And then Katie Strang, came on, one of my favorite colleagues at The Athletic, to talk about her incredible reporting yet again on Dr. V. Leverin. He's accused of sexually assaulting multiple hockey players in the Detroit suburbs. Katie talks about that this piece, how she went about reporting it, how one talks to people who have gone through this kind of trauma, um, the role of medicine here, and how um, there's a lot of trust of medical people in a community and sort of gives some little bit of insight into how this might happen in in any community and then I asked Katie about how parents of young athletes can uh, can protect their families just based on what she has learned throughout her reporting so Austin Carp and Chad Finn on Tom Brady Greg Olson and some other stuff and then Katie Strang of The Athletic coming up on the Sports Media Podcast all right as I said at the top Pleased to be joined by the regulars, Boston Globe Sports Media writer Chad Finn, Sports Business Journal Assistant Managing Editor slash Digital, Austin Carp. Quite a busy uh, week, Chad, for Austin Carp. I-, I mean, don't these- you drag me into your feuds? <laughs> America's <laughs> podcast guest. These, these, these just making <laughs> making my mama proud. There, right. we're happy for you, Austin. All right. Listen, we're we're taping this to you guys were very good to come on today on short notice. We're taping this today on Wednesday, February 1st, which is the day that Tom Brady has announced his retirement from the NFL or the second time he has announced his retirement. I think we think this one is for real. Chad, uh I'm going to start with you. This is obviously a media podcast before we get into the media stuff. Um where do you put him in terms of Boston Based athletes. Is he at the top over Ted Williams? Is he over Bobby Orr? Where is he for you? Oh, hell, the conversation here these days is whether Ortiz or uh, Ted Williams belongs on the Mount Rushmore. Of course, it's Ted Williams, but if you're, you know, 25 years or uh, younger, I guess you you might make the modern argument. But uh, I don't know. I think maybe after Bill Russell, maybe because I've been watching the Netflix trailers for the upcoming documentary, but uh, 11 championships in 13 seasons is is, uh, uh, 
unprecedented and not going to be beaten, but uh, to win six Super Bowls here in seven total uh, is uh, remarkable. You hear all the praise for Patrick Mahomes and the incredible things he's done in his young career. He's never going to get close to what Brady's accomplished. And uh, I know a little bit of luster was gone today because a year ago today, you know, it was his first retirement announcement, but uh, still should salute the, the the player that he was because uh, there's never been anybody like him. Yeah, I mean, again, one of the great athletes in team sports in North American history. He deserves to be up there with, you know, Gretzky, Lemieux, Jordan, Russell, etc. And there'll be a lot of football podcasts, obviously, that will talk about Tom Brady and his playing credentials and his greatness. And, uh, you know, unquestionably, whenever it is, 2028. First ballot Hall of Famer. Hopefully nobody, no knucklehead decides not to vote for the guy just to sort of make a statement or something like that. But, you know. The, oh, some some New York guy, Gary Myers or somebody in that little smoky <laughs> room that they're in is, is going to argue. Someone, uh, right? Gary Myers is taking some, taking some <laughs> unfair shrapnel from Chad. We don't even know how he's going to vote. Anyway, my, my point is that, like, there'll be a lot of uh, – a lot of uh, a lot of podcasts to talk about Brady's greatness and, um, and uh, enjoy all those – Let's do the media angle, though, and I'm going to start with you, Austin. If you are Tom Brady, you make this announcement to me without having talked to him. And I did write a piece to The Athletic this morning, though, having talked to some, uh, certainly some, we'll call them television industry types. I think it's clear that his his plan would be to get into the booth this coming year. Until it happens, obviously, I think he can be a little bit skeptical, but I don't see a guy retiring February 1st, 2023 not to head into the booth where he has this big deal sort of already in place. If you had to sort of take a guess based on whatever your intuition or whatever else, do we see Tom Brady week one working for Fox? I think we do. I think next season, I think you do see him in the Fox booth. I think you have a whole off season now to train him, to be a good analyst, to work in that top booth to give him the best possible chance to succeed in the role that you're paying him a lot of money for. Um, I think it's a good decision for Fox right now to not put him in the booth for the Super Bowl. I, I don't see a win there at all for Fox in front of 100, 110 million viewers, whatever the audience ends up being. But I, I also think there's an opportunity here to have him. There's like a four or five hour pregame before every Super Bowl. And we you know we always see the announcement. Oh, you know, we're going to have either like a president come on and give some sort of, you know, chat before the game. I think you would see a spike if you have Brady come on, you know, an hour or two hours before the game and give some sort of appearance there. Talk about his retirement. Talk about what his plans might be. Like if he says, "Yeah, you can expect to see me in a booth," I think that'd be a good place to announce it. Yeah, based on all my reporting, there's no plans at all for Tom Brady to be part of the game booth for the Super Bowl, that mm -hmm. kind of move would be almost inconceivable in terms of logistics and stuff like that for Fox to do that. I do think this announcement, though, as Austin just said, I think it does change the calculation and the potential of Brady being on the, the pregame. Everybody I talked to thought that it was a remote chance that he would drop onto the pregame. I think that does, maybe the equation now changes a little bit because of the announcement. Chad, the the interesting thing here, because there's a multi sort of fold uh, story at play. One is how obviously good Greg Olson has been this year and what happens with him. Two, how good can Tom Brady be? Um, that's a question that nobody seems to know. Although if you talk to people who have been with him in production meetings, 
the expectation is that he will be pretty good and that this is not a Joe Montana type. As someone who saw him for many, many years when he played for the Patriots, what is your expectation level or where does it sit when it comes to Tom Brady as a broadcaster? I think it depends on how good he wants to be. Uh, He's obviously a competitive, uh, insanely competitive person. And if he's fully committed to this with all the other things he has going on in his life um, and it makes us a relative priority, I think he will be really good. Uh, He's loosened up a little bit. You know, you get away from the constraints of what you can and can't say as a Belichick Patriot. Uh, When he went to Tampa, he was a little bit more open down there. Um, He uh, obviously there are a lot of cautionary tales with high profile NFL players in particular going into broadcasting. Drew Brees was a flop with NBC. Uh, Joe Montana was uh, almost comically bad during his year in studio at NBC. Emmett Smith wasn't good, you know, on and on down the line of these great players who just don't translate to broadcasting. Uh, I have some doubts whether. If, if he's fully committed to even if he's fully committed to it, that he will be as good as Olsen is right now. And that leads to a pretty pleasant dilemma for for Fox, where they've got this guy who they thought was good, who's probably turned out to be even better than they expected uh, in, in such a short time. And Olsen uh, and is getting a ton of praise now. And, and people have realized how good he is. And you have Brady, who's the biggest name in probably football history, who's uh, still intimately connected to the league and knows the players and coaches and once said here uh, I have all the answers to the test meaning nothing fools him anymore so when he he looks out he's going to be able to break down what's happening just in the way Tony Romo did when he first became a phenomenon so uh, if Brady's fully committed to it I think he will be really good but I think Olsen is exceptional and it's going to really lead to uh, some interesting decisions for Fox. Yeah, I'm going to get with that with you, Austin. So here's the here's sort of I think what happened here is that I think Fox liked the potential of Greg Olson a lot. The way the situation and circumstances happened, they landed with Burkhart and Olson after all these musical chairs, you know, played out where they did with Amazon and ESPN, et cetera. And then I think Olson exceeded not only their expectations but everybody's expectation. Yeah. If if this is my opinion, but I feel like it's pretty informed analysis. If you put Fox's executives, I'm not talking about News Corp execs now, Fox Sports executives under truth serum and asked if you if I could give you guys um, Burkhart Olson next year versus Brady Olson uh, versus Burkhart Brady next year, I really think they'd go Burkhart Olson. Uh, no disrespect. You really? Wow. I do. I agree. Yeah, I think because they have a proven commodity – I think they have a very good chemistry booth. I also think he's <laughs> – I also quite think he's uh, much more affordable, Chad, on the balance sheet there. And so um, I think they would. That said, you don't bring Tom Brady in and make him the number two uh, analyst at an NFL network. He's absolutely going to be number one. Even Greg Olson knows that. So, Austin, the real question here is that this is an unprecedented situation, right? Mm-hmm. Greg Olson has never had to face – no one's ever had to face what Greg Olson has had to face. He's had an incredible year as a number one, and he yeah. may get put down to number two, having nothing to do with how he performed in the job. Just kind right. of an amazing situation. Um, it's a backup quarterback performing incredibly well when the starter went down, but the starter is a Hall of Famer, uh, you know, 
no pun intended in this case. And yeah, he's got to go to the backup role again. There, there is no precedent though in the broadcast booth for this. And I got to be honest, I, I see it as almost like a lose-lose situation for Brady because not only is he going to be compared, he's going to be compared to how good he was on the field and is he that good in the booth? He's going to be compared to, well, Romo was good right off the bat. Tom Brady is not going to have that kid in a candy store type feel that I think, you know, that Romo brought to the booth. I I don't think that that's Tom Brady. That's not his personality. And he's definitely going to be compared to the guy he's replacing. And he's, I don't think he's going to come in in day one and and be as good as he was this season, uh, you know, as the guy he's replacing. So I I see it as a lose-lose for Fox. And yes, if Lachlan Murdoch and the Murdoch family wasn't paying him all this money, no, I, I I don't think he'd be there to start the 2023 season, but I say he will be because they are ponying up that money. And if you're going to pay him, yeah, you got you got to see how he's going to play. Yeah, it's Chad. So I mean, like in this case, I think Austin's right. The, the expectation level for Brady is going to be through the roof to start with. So forget about any, forget about Greg Olson, forget about any of the other analysts. It's just going to be high because it's Tom Brady. Now add to that. The guy who he's replacing had a great year and got probably better press than any other NFL analyst out there. Brady will be compared to Aikman, Collinsworth, and Mm -hmm. Herbstreet just because that's Romo, too. That's just part of the job. So, like, I have no doubt Tom Brady's going to work hard. And Tom Brady may be good, but you can make the argument, and I don't think it's a crazy argument, no one has had more um, expectations placed on him given the competition and given his own uh talent base at fox than tom brady when he walks into the booth well there's a few elements to this i mean what part of the fox viewership is uh wants to hear from brady anyway i mean this he new england fans are going to of course uh the bucks fans but for for a lot of fan bases he's an avatar of crushing disappointment you know it's uh <laughs> it would be like if fox added Derek jeter to the their baseball booth in 2003 you know for for red sox fans so uh i i think intrinsically there's a lot of fans who already kind of have a negative feeling about him because he's beaten them so many times he also hasn't done this bill belichick has more um more Super Bowl TV broadcasting experience than than Brady does. He mm-hmm. uh, it was the uh, same uh, Seahawks Steelers Super Bowl was that 2006 where he was part of the uh, ABC studio I think it was and was like great on like the Telestrator and things like that. So uh, Brady hasn't even done that. And I'm also just not quite sure what kind of broadcaster he's going to want to be. I mean he's been guarded as a player and it's it's served him well. Um, you know as a uh, reporters, uh, I, I think, generally liked dealing with him because he would do his thing at the podium, but especially as a younger player, you could pull him aside separately and he would help you out with something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he said that what he who he, he admired as a broadcaster was Johnny Miller on golf. He ripped everybody. So is, is that really what Brady's going to do? Because he's never done that at all during his playing career. So Yeah, the, the you know, the one thing, Austin, is, and this, you know, the one thing about all the expectations, though, where it could favor Brady is it's exactly what Chad just said. I do think he'll walk into the booth with people thinking he's going to be a little milk toast and he's not going to be critical. I was told by people who were in those production meetings that he has no problems being critical. 
Now, obviously, that never got on the air, right? Because obviously, Brady's saying that to the production people. But I feel like if he, that's like one area where if he is critical when criticism is warranted of players and coaches, I think that would be eye-opening for people because I think it's a change in persona. Most, that's a total. Yeah, most that, most most people think of Tom Brady as uh, maybe milk toast isn't the right word, but pretty. Um, you know what he says is very very measured and mm-hmm. and. And is always going to be careful, yeah, right? Not to, yeah, not to um, upset the apple cart. If he's going to go all, you know, if he's going to go Hulk Hogan WWF to Hulk Hogan NWA, <laughs> NWO, <laughs> NWO, excuse me, right? Yeah, yeah. If he's going to turn, you know, do the heel turn thing, you know, that's a that's a change. I wouldn't see that that coming. I, um, I don't know if that's what he wants to do. I don't know if that's what his his the brands that he's associated with want him to do. I mean, he's really cultivated this personality. Uh, over 20 years, and that's going to serve him well in retirement too with these brands. I, I don't, I don't know if that's him. I see him more, you know, I mean, highest ceiling possible, more like Troy Aikman, somebody who's a very cerebral analyst, can provide insights. Doesn't, you know, not too high, not too low, but you totally respect the expertise that he's providing. And you know, I, I would hope that that's a ceiling for him. Yeah, good nature. Uh, chat. Yeah. Chad, I was going to say this about Greg Olson. Um, I think uh, um, if you're Olson's agent, and I think I heard the same thing Marshant heard that like that there's like some kind of clause in the contract where like he's allowed if a number one job opens up, he's allowed to talk to him or he he can inquire. I, I obviously have not seen the contract, but I let's sort of just like play with the presumption that um, Olson's uh, Rubicon agent is going to uh, do his due diligence and call some of the other networks just to check in to see, hey guys, what's going on? NBC with Collinsworth, they're now replacing him. He's got a couple years on the deal. I do not see, even if Amazon didn't like Herb Street, and I think they do like Herb Street, you're not going to buy a guy out. You know, year two of a five-year deal or whatever that is. I mean, that that's just bad business. So if you're Greg Olson. Like as good as of a year as you've had, and as great a reputation this year has provided for you, there is no other job out there. So I think leverage-wise, you don't have any. And I think if Fox says, "Hey, you were awesome, but we're bringing Brady in. We really want you to be our number two. I think if you're Olsen, right, you got to be the number two. Yeah. Is there, is there I, I, some I, sort of X factor where there's a three-man booth? Would Amazon go to a three-man booth if you can get somebody like that? Would you? Well, I would. So let me counter that back to you, Austin. Is hmm. being in the third person booth in Amazon better than being on Fox's number two games? I would say no, personally. No, no. I think the Fox number two is a better spot right now. I think. So. What about you, Chad? What's the? What's? How do you look at all this? Yeah, I agree. Although it'd be a pay cut for him from the number one spot, and probably yes, uh, frustrating to some degree. I've heard the same thing that he has an opt out if that number one gig becomes available. Um, Tony Romo have a buyout. There's a lot of backlash against him right now. And what's he got? Nine years left on this deal after this. But yeah, but you know, listen, even with, yeah, and I listen, I'm not going to, there'll be another time for us to sort of do the, at a certain point, my head starts like, I want to throw myself out a window with too much broadcasting, (laughs) like game by game analysis. But having talked to CBS, they're not replacing Tony Romo. I'm just like, I'm just telling you, like, that's not happening. Whether they liked his year or not, it's not going to happen. So, for the purposes of of this conversation and Greg Olson, 
there's not really any place for him to go. Uh, he just his timing is just unfortunate because of his because if he had this year when there were jobs open, I, I think he'd get a number one job. Yeah. How long do you think Collinsworth will be with NBC? He's sixty four. Yeah. He's got a couple of years left on his deal. It's, it's not the um, same with Tarico. No, I mean I think um, he either ends on this deal or he signs a short term deal and that's it. So I think like that job. Like that job will be open in the next five to seven years. You know, I know that's a long time in broadcasting, but it's you know, Greg Olson's thirty seven. Like that's yeah. he's a young person in mm. in this business, and so like that job will be open. He's eight years without, younger than Brady. <laughs> yeah, right. Without knowing anything, by the way, on this, I am. I'm not. I would not bet on Kirk Herbstreit being Amazon's analyst five years from now. Right. I just think that he can't keep know, up that schedule. I mean, that's uh, yeah, insane. Just, I, I don't think, yeah, I just, I think it's sort of crazy to think that, like, Amazon's going to have Kirk Herbstreit as their uh, NFL analyst for the next whatever many years. So potentially that job could come up. I, I think Romo stays with CBS. Aikman's got a long-term deal. So, like, it's possible to come up. The one thing about Olsen, though, and I and I could get his frustration here and his agent's frustration here. You don't know who's going to retire, right, in the next couple years from the NFL. And so it's not a guarantee, even if you're as good as he's been. Like, I don't, like, once upon a time, I might have thought Aaron Rodgers might have been that guy. I don't know if that's going to be, if he's going to be the guy now. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you just, you don't know. I don't, Mike Tomlin retires. Bill Belichick wants to get in this. Like, there are going to be some X factors that we just don't know about. Yeah. Sean Sean McVay. Didn't mention him, right? Right. Right, yeah, you know, you know, what's who's the number two play by play? It's Joe Davis, right, at, at Fox. Joe Davis, yeah, yep. I mean, one of the things that I think goes sort of undervalued with this is, is how good Burkhart has been at building the chemistry with Olsen. Yes. And you kind of look at Burkhart's career, where you know he was uh, famously you know selling cars before he got the the gig with the Mets, and really ascended pretty quickly up the depth chart at Fox, and um, his Real been excellent for them in a bunch of roles. The baseball studio uh, show is chaos that he keeps under control, uh, more or less. Uh, he's he's built a really quick bond with Olsen, and I think he deserves a lot of credit for this. And I don't know, Joe Davis is a terrific broadcaster, but I don't know if he'd have the same chemistry with Olsen on a number two team as Olsen yeah. and Burkhardt do at number one. And I, I trust that Burkhardt with chemistry with Brady as much as Brady allows it, but uh, this really works with the two of them, and I, I don't know if that can be replicated uh, if, if Olsen changes who he's working with. I think it's a great point. I think, like, in broadcasting, you, sometimes you get lucky. You know, you get Ernie, Charles, and Kenny, and it just works, and then you get other Who would have thought Ernie and- would have worked with those guys like this? Yeah, you know. yeah. Ernie's a good. He's just an ego-free host and a, and a great guy to get along with. That that doesn't surprise me. But the one thing I have to give Fox credit for this, and the guy who really deserves credit for this, I mean, there's a couple people, but you know, you get Brad Zager, who's the president of production uh, operations, their executive producer, a lot of credit. They have a very very deep play-by-play bench mm-hmm. in the NFL with Adam Amin, Joe Davison, and Kevin Burkhart as their top three. Um, you know, obviously there, there's other play by players there who are good, but like, that's a, that's a really good top three. And any of those three guys to me could be number ones on the NFL. So whoever Olsen's with, and I would assume will be with Joe Davis, that should be a very good team. 
No, I don't think we were talking. We didn't talk this season at all about Fox's roster of play-by-play announcers, the way that we talked about the post, you know, once Tariko left Monday Night Football, you know, the years after where there was just such a hole there. We, we didn't talk about that this season. We talked about how well that that number one and number two booth were doing for Fox. Yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, and that Kevin Kugler is Kenny Albert. I mean, that's a deep group. They got a, they got a, they got a deep play-by-play crew. Now, by the way, this would be the portion where I take a shot at Brad Sager <laughs> <laughs> and Fox Sports PR. Listen, we all know that you have to put some kind of uh, quote in a press release, right, Chad and Austin? I mean, this is just part of what television press releases. Of course. Do. But if you're gonna do this, if you're gonna have your executive on here. This is what Brad Zager said as a, as a, in one of these press releases for uh, to announce like whatever Fox's like multi part uh, Super Bowl plan is. Following a highly successful and thrilling NFL regular season, and now with Super Bowl uh, fifty two upon us, it has never been more apparent that Fox is football. Would anyone in like real human conversation say it has never been more apparent that Fox is football? You got don't you? You got to make your executives sound like human beings, right, and not robots. <laughs> Throw a few likes and ums in there, at least. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Used to be like, this is what I loved about ESPN, when like Norby Williamson uh, or one of these cats would be like on a a press release. And you know that it was just like Josh Krulowitz and Crystal Plaka, Mike Saltis, whoever, just writing like the the script for the quote approval to come. But it has to still sound like a human being, right? Although maybe not. With all the, uh, with chat GPT, right? Maybe it doesn't have to sound like a human being anymore. And uh and AI will uh, will save us all. All right, is there anything else we need to talk about with Tommy Brady, Greg Olson, Super Bowl pregame, Super Bowl game? What's your Chad, bet? Anything what, you got? What's your What's your bet on what they do this weekend? Is he is Does he show up at all? I mean, next uh, next Sunday. I'll bet that Tom Brady will that will will do five minutes on on Fox's Super Bowl pregame show. That's my that's, my that's my me too. Yeah, what Austin? You guys? Okay, we all agree. There's no chance of him being in the booth. I, I mean, if they went down that, I would love it because I think the train wreck possibilities would be incredible. But uh, but that's not going to happen. Uh, and by the way, Austin, just on your own reference for the NWO, mm-hmm. uh, one Kevin Nash to me is my favorite NWO member, and I was always a Sting guy anyway. So I liked seeing the NWA get uh, get pounded. Fair enough. That's my segue to NHL viewership, which is well, by that's the way a natural segue, segue, of course, and makes no sense at all. All right. So Austin, again, I know you've done fifteen other podcasts this week, <laughs> so we're gonna. And I think you've talked about this in particular, but this is something I wanted to have you on because I saw this in Sports Business uh, uh, Daily, and I was kind of blown away. Chad, I don't know if you know this, but. So via Austin, NFL, NFL, NHL viewership on ESPN and TNT is down 22%. I saw that, yeah. Heading into the All-Star break. Mm. Um, it's averaging, games are averaging 373,000 on ESPN and TNT so far this season. Last season, it averaged 478,000 viewers at this same point. Now, that's a monster drop. There are some reasons for this. Mm-hmm. And for that, we will we will go to Austin Carp. Austin, regardless, like that's eye opening. Twenty, yeah. you know, it's one thing to be down three, four, five percent, which happens, or up three, four, five percent. That's a massive, that's a massive yeah. drop. Why is you that? can provide all the caveats in the world? Down twenty two percent is down twenty two percent, and it is eye opening. Um, this is what year two of the new media rights deal. So 
they made some changes. I think Gary Bettman and NHL headquarters wanted to see more games on linear TV, and that was clearly evidenced during this first half of the season as we head into the All-Star game this weekend. Uh, there were a lot of games that aired, particularly on TNT, that went up against the NFL. And we, uh, you know, uh, everybody's learned their lesson in the sports world. You don't do well up against the NFL, and that was evidenced in the TNT numbers. Um, there were not, there have not been ABC games, so they can pick it up maybe, uh, you know, for ESPN that back half of the season. I think you're going to have something like 14 ABC games versus maybe nine last year. So they will be able to make up, I think, a little bit there in the back. But uh, it's also, I think, part of where the NHL sits right now. You have some of your best and most popular players playing in Canada. You're not going to see that audience. You don't get the numbers from the Edmonton market. You don't get the numbers from the Toronto market. You also have some popular teams that are out west, whether it's the Avalanche or the Golden Knights or the Kraken. Um, yeah, your, your, your original six are still going to be popular, but some of the best players are just in teams and time zones that are not lending itself well to viewership right now. Austin, what's the impact of blackouts on like really good traditional hockey markets like Boston or Philadelphia, uh, Pittsburgh? I mean, that was a you know part of putting these games, more games on linear TV. Is you those games were reserved for the regional sports networks. So in some of your bigger markets, whether it's Boston or New York and some others, yeah, a lot of a lot of those TNT games were blacked out locally. Uh, they were reserved for the RSNs, and that impacted the numbers. Um, it, it hurts. It hurts when you have blackouts like that. So I have two more things on this, and Chad, we can eventually get to you. Because I mean, I should, because Boston, of course, is the best team in the league. I should just give you a chance to talk just because you are in the city, a potential champion. So one thing I saw, Austin, from your um, – and this is all crib, basically, from Austin's reporting at SBJ. Winter Classic on TNT, not just down, but like really, really down from the numbers that NBC had. Like to me, that feels more like the Winter Classic maybe is not as marquee a property as it once was, as opposed to being on cable. But I guess you can make the counter argument, like whatever the difference is between cable and, and network, there's your difference between viewership. How do you see the winter classic in particular, which is obviously a property that the NHL really likes to put up there as kind of their, their, their big in season thing. It's, it was not, doing incredibly well in the numbers when it was on NBC, you know, when it was NBC compared to NBC, you put it on cable TV and there was a huge drop last year. Um, it was the best at the time, regular season NHL cable number, but also a new low for the winter classic itself. Saw a little bit of an uptick this year. Again, the best, you know, NHL regular season game on cable, but that's to be expected. This is the NHL's marquee game during the regular season. Uh, but yeah, I think it has, I think it's a it's a good event. It's a great live event. So much of the NHL, NHL does with their outdoor games are incredible in terms of live events. But uh, as far as a TV property, it's respectable, but it's, you know, I, I don't think it's going to really, it's going to be tough to push like 2 million viewers for this thing in the future. So, all right. So lastly, on this one for you. So if I'm a, um, if I'm an NHL person, mm -hmm. and this might've been from John O'Rand, like I can point to like numbers on ESPN.com and the ESPN app way up. Like I could point mm -hmm. to like my digital properties and I'm sure if, you know, they can provide us with like, you know, their TikTok numbers are up exactly. or, you know, their, their Instagram numbers are up. So does that mitigate any of the, the television numbers to me? I mean, that's how I would spin it if I was NHL PR, mm -hmm. but the reality is you're, 
you're at the end of the day, you're still spinning. Right. Like these, you're you're getting big money because of the television viewership contracts and the television numbers right now are not good for that. Yeah, I mean, we don't have the numbers broken out. So congratulations to every streaming property out there for seeing <laughs> year over year growth for every sport that it airs, whether it, you know, that's right. ESPN plus Peacock, Paramount, you name it. You don't have numbers, but the numbers are always up. Um, yeah, but <laughs> particularly with this NHL deal, that was such a focus was giving more tonnage to the streaming platform to ESPN plus Hulu and yeah, they do say the numbers are up there. And if you believe them, then that's then it's successful. Then the deal is proven to be successful for Disney. And uh, that's what you know, that's what you're going to see with a lot of these future deals is more tonnage to populate these streaming properties. And I just <laughs> I just I'm a numbers guy, and I want to see the numbers in the future. And the more numbers you give me, you know, no, no, numbers don't lie. Chad, I'm. Uh, I imagine at least in Boston, though, locally, the numbers must be great, right? I mean, Bruins are basically on the precipice of a historic season. Yeah, seven losses so far. Uh, we well, saw the Nessa numbers uh, probably after the first month of the season. Haven't seen them lately, but they were way up, and just uh, the buzz for the the Bruins around here uh, probably makes them a real outlier with the NHL. I mean, you look at the league right now. There's a lot of teams that are in kind of marginal markets that are doing really well uh you know like uh winnipeg's like six in the league in points and you know, i think three of the top 11 or 12 teams are original six teams and otherwise it's like carolina a couple florida teams so it's kind of spread out all over the place rather than being the biggest markets and the uh you know, the teams of the greatest histories, which tend to be the the bigger draws on national television. I was surprised by the uh, Winter Classic numbers, though, because that in particular, you know, Fenway Park this year, Bruins Penguins had uh, enormous interest around here. But it, I guess it just didn't resonate at all nationally. Yeah, I covered the first one, which was in Buffalo. Uh, and it was Ooh. it was such a cool thing. Ryan uh, Miller. The Sidney Crosby. Yeah, Sidney Crosby, I think, scored the game winner. And um it was very cool. Felt fresh, um, and I think it's you know I, I do understand it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to make that thing fresh every year. So we'll see. You know, we'll see the way it looks that so good on left. TV though. It just looks great. It does. It's actually better on TV than it is in person because you can't actually see what's going yeah. on. I agree. It's like it's like it's like the uh, NHL's equivalent of like a snow football game. The aesthetics in the background yeah. are uh, are usually beautiful. I'll, All right, I'll, last I'll, two. I'll, Chad, I just want to make one last go ahead, point Austin. about yeah, like, please. I want to see Connor McDavid play because I'm not a I'm a very casual hockey fan, but I want to see the best play. And everyone tells me he's the best player. And these he Oilers is. games, if you're putting them on, like TNT, like I think of four appearances, none of even top three hundred thousand viewers. Wow. Yep. So well, you know, Austin, like I, I didn't mean. Here. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do want to get your take on this. Like you know, I live in Toronto, obviously. So you know, I I in this market, Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner. Morgan Riley, you know, that there's some really great players, Austin Matthews being the best player. But they're not on television in the States mm-hmm. a lot, right? And Connor McDavid, Leon D- Dreisaitl of, of the Oilers, they're not on television a lot. There's always been this kind of, like, debate. And this happened at NBC, too. Oh, yeah. Do you, do you put these kind of teams on knowing that you're going to get low viewership and make the investment in educating the public on these players and then down the road – 
you get that payment with higher viewership. I get it's very easy for us to say this on a podcast like this, but NBC, and I imagine in some ways ESPN and TNT, they're going to go for the surer thing with Philly, Boston, when Chicago was good Chicago, because they're too afraid of getting these kind of low numbers when you have Edmonton or when you have Toronto, because you obviously don't get those two cities when it comes to Nielsen. I think... You know, I will give them credit for putting that many Oilers games on there. And they're showcasing a couple of other Canadian markets. And you want to show the best, especially for TNT, because, you know, if the Oilers make the Stanley Cup final, they got it this year. And I think they want their viewers to kind of have some experience watching the, the Oilers play. So, you know, so far, they I think they've had four games. And like I said, uh, yes, one, I, I look at it again, one did top 300,000 viewers. So I'll give them credit for that before mm. I hear from Turner and have a dead horse's head on my bed. <laughs> does that what Turner does? Like literally, when they complain, rather than oh, just do no. a phone I call, they them. leave I, a dead I horse love on the a bed. Folks in Atlanta, they're they're great to deal with. Um, but uh, Nate Smeltz, Blair Blair Cofield, they're getting it done. I like I like that kind of PR. Yeah. I'd like I like the Godfather referencing uh, stuff. <laughs> and ESPN has only had one. They just had them, you know, uh, mid January, and that barely topped three hundred thousand viewers. But I mean, there are other teams that don't draw that. Like, uh, don't get me wrong. No, like, Ameri- like U.S.-based teams, but uh, I love I love hockey. But man, it does tell you something when the team with the best player in the sport is drawing those yeah. kind of numbers, even if it's a Canadian team. I mean, it just like, like that's a people rough give the NHL for a lot a of grief because oh, I just keep seeing the same teams. But I'm sorry, unless you're putting on Bruins Penguins or Bruins Rangers or Penguins Rangers, you know, that's the only way you're going to top 700, 750,000 viewers. I will say this. It's a great sport, and obviously I've really, really grown fond of it since I moved north of the border. That said, Chad, I know you've covered Bruins games. You'll agree with me. The experience in arena is much Mm. better than television, where the television experience, let's say like the NFL, is phenomenal, and I would argue better than the in-game experience. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, football game in person makes you want to go home and watch it on TV, and and hockey is the opposite. (laughs) I actually learned that covering college hockey uh, years ago where – I had no interest in it at all till I actually started covering it as a reporter. And then I was like, this is one of the, the great hidden gems on the sports mm-hmm. landscape. But uh, awesome. In yeah, person. it has to be in person. It's just not the same on television. I, I had the same experience. Yeah, again, yeah, my... I went to a Michigan Ohio State hockey game uh, years, years ago. And it was just an incredible experience. And I had no. Did you see that in Michigan? Yeah, or Austin, I, I, or, uh, it, I was at the Big Ten tournament at Joe Lewis. And uh, oh, was wow. on, I was on a random date there. And it was great. Best uh, hockey game I've ever covered live. U.S. Uh, gold medal match, U.S. women versus the Canadians. Canadians won. Is that uh, Nagano? 3-2. No, the U.S. won yeah, in Nagano. No, Sochi. So- Sochi. 3-2 yeah. in overtime. I've never, ever seen a um, a sports team take a harder, like, field loss harder than the U.S. women did after that game. That was, they were gutted. But it was an incredibly thrilling game to, to watch. All right, last two topics, Chad. I'm going to stick with you. You can do this quick. You had a story that I found really, really interesting in Boston, and that was that Channel 4 in Boston is testing a 6 p.m. newscast without a sports report. The reason I find this interesting, um, obviously sort of doing a national sports media podcast, is we have seen local news across the country start to pretty much jet out of sports, you know, basically keep it weather and Local news. What stunned me, though, and I did tweet about this. You're welcome for the for the for the free link. There, <laughs> Much appreciated. Was that uh, it's Boston? Yeah. Fucking a, man! Like you can't get a more passionate sports city in the United States. So that's what stunned me. It's like, all right, I you know whatever. It's in um, 
I don't want to rip on any city, but you know, Tallahassee, Florida. If you're not doing local sports, I mean, I get it sucks, but I get it. But Boston, like, I was I was blown away by that. Yeah, it's uh, you know, it, it's not unprecedented. I mean, I, I live in, I actually live in Maine, and and uh, none of the local stations up here do it at six o'clock anymore. Um, but it is uh, somewhat shocking for a Boston station to, do, especially at a point in time where the winter sports teams are both uh, have genuine championship aspirations, both number leading the standings in, in their respective leagues, the Celtics and Bruins, and uh, the interest for both of them is probably higher cumulatively than it's been in a long time. I mean, we see it in our traffic on our websites. We do more Bruins, do more Celtics uh, because it's resonating with readers. So that has to has to translate to TV too. But uh, their rationale is they like to have feature stories and weather leading into the nightly news when their viewership is at a peak. They, they're calling this an experiment. And uh, I can't say that I really blame them because uh, you look at what uh, tracks for them in, in that six o'clock hour, it's weather, 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 and the occasional feature story. So um, mm. I don't really blame them. If they change something at 11 o'clock, that's when the uh, you know the shit would hit the fan with everybody when after the hmm. after the uh, uh, results are in and the games have been played. But really, it's just preview stuff okay. anyway. That's interesting. Okay, and I, that actually I probably didn't think that through. That does make sense to me that you can make that tweak at six, but if you do it at eleven, then you're then you're getting rid of highlights, and that's a that's a, that's a different animal. All right, let's end on this. Um, I'll start with uh, you, Chad, again, and then Austin. Feel free to weigh in. Um, I was really, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, please seems like a wrong word in this context because someone has passed. That said, I appreciated the people who wrote obits on Bobby Hall who who did not sugarcoat Bob the, the sort of the bad parts of Bobby Hall. Uh, Bobby Hall just blunt, was a total <laughs> asshole. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. To say it. Um, it he was an incredible hockey player, but his away from hockey life was pretty gross. And so, you know, I read a piece in the Toronto star headline was Bobby Hull was a great hockey player and a miserable human being. His legacy isn't complicated. Bruce Arthur wrote that the, my colleagues at the athletic Mark Lazarus and some others, I thought really gave a fair and nuanced portrait of Bobby Hall. Chad, you told me that Kevin Paul DuPont at the Boston globe did. And I feel like this is progress that like, um, you don't have to lionize bad people just because they passed away in, in sports. And I feel like, for the most part, at least at least what I saw, like people gave the bad parts of Bobby Hall in addition to the good parts, which obviously were his great hockey ability and and the fact that he changed the game with his WHA contract, et cetera. Yeah, I actually wasn't aware a lot of it, aware of a lot of it either. Um, that the the, the the Nazi stuff, uh, uh, talking about Hitler and uh, the beating two of his three two of his three ex wives, accusing him of abuse. Uh, I didn't know that stuff about him. I don't know if I did at one point in time, but uh, it's it's necessary to tell the full story of somebody, even if they're mm -hmm. a uh, you know a legend uh, in their obituary. And my uh, my colleague Kevin Paul Dupont wrote one. I think it was uh, treated as a hockey column on our website, but it read like an obit and a very candid mm -hmm. one. And uh, I'll put it on my Twitter feed because I recommend certainly recommend anybody read that uh, and uh, kind of. 
uh, say blew me away, but I was really impressed that it took the full scope of the person that he was because that's not always how these things have been done. They've uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, when somebody dies, you, you, your instinct is to say the best things about them, but um, really we should be truthful. And uh, I do think it's progress, as you said, that we, uh, we are in situations like this now. Austin, does SBJ have some kind of policy when it comes to um, Bobby Hall is not the best example for your publication, mm-hmm. but if it was, if it was like a, like a, like a, a significant, like, broadcast like president figure or a significant agency figure who had um you know had some stuff in his or her life that was not good a sports harvey how, how would you guys handle something like that <laughs> yeah i wow. mean i'm not trying not i wouldn't i wasn't thinking of like the worst of the worst <laughs> but do you know what i'm saying austin like how would you how would you guys uh, handle we would it? have we would tell the whole story like, I, I think that's the only way to do it is to like chad said tell a holistic story tell the whole story it's not just about what they did in sports. Like people live lives. They are human beings. So, you know, what's going to be the tale on Lance Armstrong when you write his obit or a Kurt Schilling or Pete Rose. I mean, these are flawed human beings who did bad things and it's just part of their story. And you have to tell that story. And I really hope there's not a sports business, Harvey Weinstein out there that we have to write about. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, I hope not either, but unfortunately, we've seen um, a lot of bad people uh, bubble up in the world lately. I, I, I will say down the road for both of you guys, um, and I may have somebody who covers women's basketball join us on this one, that uh, I'm really interested. Michael Smith had an excellent story, Austin, great news break, that um, the NCAA's picked mm-hmm. Karen Brodkin and Hillary Mandel, I think yep. they're of Endeavor, right, to prepare the... Um, the NCAA for its next rounds of media rights mm-hmm. negotiations and what that might mean for the women's NCAA basketball tournament. That's obviously something great of interest to Mike because I covered women's basketball for a long time at SI. But I'm really fascinated by that, Austin, because I and many others believe that if that women's basketball tournament ever got mm-hmm. separated, they would get a shitload yeah. for it. But the NCAA's counter to that, and I don't think, I don't like the NCAA, but I think this is a fair counter. If you take a tournament like that out, it's going to hurt us from getting more money and exposure for some of these other smaller events because the women's tournament is taken out. So I could see both sides, but, um, well, let's talk about that Austin, as it uh, gets closer, because I really think that if they ever put the women's tournament up for bid ESPN better watch out because there's going to be a lot of people. I think that would bid I think on there's that. There's going to be a lot of inches, yeah. but I, I totally agree with you in the NCAA's position that is it a Jenga piece? And if you take it out, is the rest of it worth anything? Like people love, you know, they love to talk about the College World Series or they love to talk about the Frozen Four. They love to talk about the success of maybe the Women's NCAA Gymnastics Championships. But those are not getting the numbers that the Women's Basketball Tournament gets. And so it props up a lot of that. And I don't know that a, a package with everything else would be worth nearly as much. And I don't know the NCAA would get as much money. So I think that's what... Uh, Karen and Hillary are brought on to kind of advise the NCAA on, and it's going to be a very interesting uh, package of media rights to watch. Yeah, um, um, Chad, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to this. I, like, I don't care what the NCAA makes. I don't care about the NCAA getting money. So <laughs> I am rooting for the highest bidder on that one. That said, I don't think the argument Austin just made 
is like a falsehood. I, I do buy that. You, if you're gonna, if you're gonna roll up all these rights outside of the obviously men's basketball tournament, we already know football separate. I think golf is separate mm-hmm. too. Like that's probably the showpiece for the NCAA, and that's where a lot of money can come in. But I don't know. I just think like ESPN's done a great job with that tournament. Uh, hundred full full marks, hundred yeah. percent. I've give I've written this to death, and I will always say that. But man, would I love to see like an open market for that? Because uh, you know, who knows? I don't know. Maybe you Google or YouTube's just like you know what? We're gonna make this our mm-hmm. signature thing. Here's a hundred million bucks. You know, seems like, like you it's know. one of the real so that's why uh, rapid growth areas in terms of sports sports interest Absolutely. and viewership that uh, it's just gonna keep getting better. Yep. They just uh, you know when. Um, I don't have it in front of me, Austin. You may know it off the top of your head, right? But didn't UConn, South Carolina, do four million, something like, that. like yeah, something a, like that, like right? Best four million championship in, game in yeah, years, so you, like 20, 15 years or something. Like yeah, that. You, right. You put that. You get that. You you get that into a good time spot. I still think you should put it on ABC, but you get it on ESPN or whatever. You get away from other sports. Uh, you know whatever else is on that day, and you know you're not so far away from like Stanley Cup final <laughs> viewership. Right, like you know, and you're right there with that with MLB postseason viewership. That's not the World Series. That's a major problem. I don't think the NCAA so, wants to see uh, the exposure go backwards. And you said, yeah, oh, that's yes, a great right, point. Right. Yeah, they've yeah. seen so many of these properties move to ABC, and ESPN has been flexible, moving a ton of games in the women's basketball tournament to ABC, moving women's gymnastics or women's volleyball to ABC, and giving it exposure that it never had before. And a streaming property 100%. just doesn't offer that. They just don't. Yeah, listen. It, it, you can kill ESPN for a lot of things. And they trust me when I say they do some dopey things, <laughs> quite frankly. That said, on on this, they should be praised to the health. They have helped build women's basketball, women's volleyball. Um, they've given, in particular, like the women's NCAA tournament, like Softball. far better windows. Yep. Yeah, no. softball, like, you know, they, they have, they're a massive, if not the biggest reason for the growth of these sports. I, I mean, I, you know, I think one of the last sort of Rubicons on this is that I don't know how you do it, but you could, it would really, it would really be great to see some of these sports get talked about more on their um, shoulder programming. Uh, I don't know if that's ever going to happen in a first take get up world. I don't want Stephen A's volleyball um, takes. I, I think, I think, yeah. I think. Well, you know, if, if if you're volleyball, though, you yeah, know what, true. you'll take it because, like, it's you know, four hundred thousand, five hundred thousand people watching. But I, yeah, I, trust me, I, I I understand the sentiment of that. All right, is there? I, I've kept you guys very long. Is there anything else, uh, Austin? Do you have any other podcast commitments? Today? Uh, I'll be doing Meet the Press on Sunday. Uh, if you guys want to catch me talking about uh, the latest congressional agendas. Oh, nice. I know. By the way, Chuck Todd. Chuck, Chuck Todd, Todd SBD, always trends on SB, uh, founder. <laughs> He is, yeah. Gen- uh, no offense to Chuck, but generally speaking, that's not he's not trending positive reasons. Um, Chad, anything you want to promote? Uh, no, I'd like to bitch about a uh, carriage dispute with YouTube TV and the MLB Network, but I need another two hours for that. So, <laughs> no. Yeah, there's probably other podcasts you can hit that up on. I'll get Austin to hook me up with All right, Chad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Austin. Did, did, <laughs> nobody, Nobody's more uh, connected to the podcast world now than – then awesome. And congrats to Jimmy Trainer, by the way, who I believe will be changing his podcast name from the SI Media Podcast to um, it's going to be something like Sports Media with Jimmy Trainer. I all I know is Jimmy Trainer will be in the title um, 
of that podcast. Uh, so congrats. I mean, total ego play, obviously, but still congrats to him. He's worked very hard on that podcast. So give him his flowers uh, with the title change. All right, Chad Finn, Boston Globe media writer, general columnist. Follow his all his work. Austin Carp, sports business uh, journal, executive <laughs> management uh, uh, levels there. Follow his uh, all his uh, work on... Um, that site as well as Twitter. And again, as we always say, uh, Austin Carp on the Mount Rushmore in this country of viewership uh, guru types with uh, with Anthony Krupe and uh, John Lewis of Sports Media Watch, et cetera. Austin, uh, Chad, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You guys came on. We're really, really good to do this because I wanted to get something on Brady today. And uh, thanks so much for joining me on the Sports Media Podcast. You're my first thanks, podcast man. of choice, Richard, always. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you, Austin. Thank you. <laughs> All right, as I said at the top, Katie Strang is an investigative reporter with The Athletic. She's been on this podcast many times. One of my uh, favorite colleagues at The Athletic. And, uh, you know, I, I, I say this all the time because I genuinely mean it. It really is a pleasure to be on staff with her because she she's such an exceptional reporter and really cares about important stories in North America. And pleased to be joined by Katie Strang. Katie, welcome back to the Sports Media Podcast. Thanks for having me. You always build me up so nicely. <laughs> I know. One day, one day I'll just have you on and we'll just talk about like things that don't matter, like, you know, Tony Romo and Jim Nance and Chris Collinsworth. Oh uh, but this is a serious topic, and you have a piece this week on the athletic. It's a really important piece. Um, if you haven't read it, Katie wrote about uh, there's a doctor, uh, Zvi Leverin who is accused of sexually assaulting multiple hockey players in the Detroit suburbs. Prosecutors have charged him with 27 counts of sexual misconduct across 12 cases. The age range of complainants uh, at the time of the alleged misconduct ranges from 14 to 50. Think about that. Prosecutors expect to file more charges. Lebron has pleaded not guilty to these charges. So here's where I want to start, Katie. You spoke to more than two dozen players and Leverin patients. When you are approaching people to talk about what is really like horrific trauma, how do you go about doing that? How do you, how do you essentially a stranger, right? Try to get people to confide in you what might have been the singular most traumatic thing that happened to them in their life. Oh, you know, I think the main thing that I try to do is you know, listen with empathy and, and, you know, give them the sense that I'm covering this case because I think it's important. And I think that there is a strong, essential public service and public health component to it. Um, you know, the majority of my reporting does come from cold calls. And I, you know, I talked to over 25 players, but I probably in total talked to between 50 and 75 people for this story you know, including coaches, associates, patients, people that intersected, you know, with him in any capacity, um, professional or otherwise over the past 20 years. Um, and I like to kind of keep it pretty open-ended, especially in this case. I, I didn't have a good idea of who any of these alleged victims were or how many people might have had experiences to, you know, disclose. So what I always do is I just ask people, you know, I, I explain who I am, what I do, um, and tell them why I'm I'm covering the story, why I think it's important. And I generally leave it pretty open-ended, which is just, you know, I'm calling to let you know um, what I'm doing and, and to see if you have anything important that you think might be worth sharing with me. 
And, you know, that, that will yield a, a number of different responses, right? Like some people, a decent amount of people had glowing things to say about him and said that they saw nothing amiss. Um, some people would say that, you know, now looking back that they recognize some patterns of conduct that were suspect. And then there were some people with some firsthand experiences that, you know, I, I think some realized, you know, right away were sexual assault. I, I think there are a number of people that disclosed, you know, experiences to me that I don't think they even truly fully understood that what happened to them wasn't just like weird, bizarre, and or unorthodox, but was, you know, what they were describing was criminal sexual conduct. Katie, the state of Michigan is all too familiar with doctors who use their access to athletes to sexually abuse them. Why does this, I know this happens, This Michigan is not the only state that this happens, but we're now dealing with multiple high-profile cases in that state. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a microcosm of, you know, the sort of the greater reckoning that we're having with, you know, sexual abuse and sexual misconduct in sports and certainly in the more narrow field of physician misconduct. I, I have no theories as to why you know, three very major cases that have some significant scope and sprawl. Um, but I can say that I do think that there is an increased understanding and awareness of physician sexual misconduct over the past, you know, probably the five years since the Larry Nasser case. Um, you know, as a society, we are overwhelmingly deferential to physicians um, in, in many ways for good reasons, right? We, we have to, you know, have an inherent trust in, in their, you know, their expert analysis, their, you know, mastery of, of medical knowledge and concepts, um, and also in their intrinsic, you know, ability to you know, uphold the do no harm and, and, and to put our best interests um, at the forefront of their practice. Um, but it also makes an already significant power imbalance even more distorted. And so, you know, when when people do take advantage of that and exploit that power differential, it, it makes it even all the more egregious of a violation. Um, but it's also it it also becomes pretty complicated, right? You know, we when we go to a doctor, we are inherently so vulnerable because we we have no, you know we don't have that same knowledge and skill set in we we are we are entrusting them with very personal private things and oftentimes that does require some like sensitive touching or or things that you would talk about that you wouldn't you know talk about necessarily with a coworker um, and so you know I think there's a complexity to covering and certainly to prosecuting and investigating physician misconduct. Cause oftentimes as we've seen in previous cases, it is done under the guise of legitimate medical treatment. Right. One of the things that really struck me in reading this piece that you had was Leverin um, talking about pornography and masturbation and the, the, the boys or the young men that were hearing this, I think were clearly understandably kind of like confused in that like, well, this is a doctor, so this must be in some way sort of like 
normalized behavior for this doctor to do, even though, and this is what was interesting in your reporting, even though there was a part of them that also knew that like something's off here, like there's something that's not correct about this guy um, talking to us about them. I'm talking about, obviously, when you get to the touching of, 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 of people's um, private areas, that's obviously a, that's something different as well. But that was what struck me about your piece. And I imagine this must happen in all of, and not all of this, but in many of these cases is that people normalize what is abnormal behavior because of the degree. Right, because of the fact that this is a doctor, and I walk into his office, and there's a perception that this is someone who is, who know, right, who knows what they're doing, or this is someone who I can trust because of the position. And then, man, do I think like that's what really makes these people really scary predators. You know, I had a conversation, I had three separate conversations yesterday that really helped crystallize some things for me. One with a coworker, um, one with you know. It, it, a person whose experience was recounted in this story um, and one from a reader. And it helped like sort of um, articulate some things that I, I don't even think I truly realized even as I was reporting it. But, you know, if you look at this particular situation, you know, Dr. Leverin um, had a number of things working in his favor that I think would tilt the scales of people trusting him. So the obvious one being, that he was a physician, right? And and you're right, not just any physician, not like an orthopedic um, surgeon or a, you know a pediatrician, but he was a urologist. So he was he was dealing right. with like sensitive areas. So you know the way that the person was describing to me that you know talks about pornography and masturbation. It was also like kind of coming as a compliment to like he would describe like interactions with patients and you know he's inspecting penile anomalies and like you know there's some weird right subject matter now obviously we know that that's like a hip of a violation shouldn't have been doing that but we can't really expect teenagers to know that um so that's obviously right. like a a very intentional chipping away transgression of of a healthy boundary that should exist right there, there are a couple of other factors that I think really helped in his favor, too. You know, one, he was not from the United States. He was from Israel. Um, he came to the States like as a teenager. He still had like a pretty thick accent. Um, and so I, I think there were some cultural differences that people were both aware of and sensitive to and didn't know that if some of, you know, his conduct or behavior or you know, even speech patterns, things that he would talk about, whether those were like cultural differences that they wanted to be sensitive to. And then the third thing was he was really eccentric. And so a lot of times people just like chalked things up to like, yeah, he's a bit weird. He's a bit eccentric. He's a bit bizarre. But the confluence right. of those factors created this sort of this invisible shield that sort of insulated him from quite a significant amount of scrutiny. Yeah, that's well said. And I think a lot of that is, uh, you know, it, it sort of explain it's, it, it explains people's reaction to it. Um, and it sort of explains why people can sort of get away from this, depending, get away with this, given their positions. One of the things about your reporting and in this particular piece, Richard, that I think can I actually really just stop is, you real quick, just to like make a, a pet yeah. point of mine? Um, yeah. So, so one of the things that I think is important about this story, and it's important basically about any story like these that I report, is like 
and I try to reinforce this as much as I can, like in, in report in a very, you know, not make people in, that I'm writing about like one dimensional. Um, we expect people right. um, who are accused of these or, or, you know, prosecuted for these things. I think we often expect them to look like boogeymen, like that they jump out of the bushes and they're wearing a trench coat or they're, you know, driving a big conversion van or, or what have you. But um, it, that if that's if that was the case, they'd be much easier to detect. It's often not. It's it's our neighbors. It's our coaches. It's our teachers. It's people that you know have really redeeming qualities and seem benevolent to a lot of people and have charisma and are you know ingratiate themselves to to groups of people because they're likable. Um, and so I do think it's important that we cover these stories in this way so that people understand that um, you know if he was just a creep, a one-dimensional creep, um, then then maybe some of the reactions that people are anticipating would have happened. But but this is someone that people liked and trusted, not just trusted, but also liked. Yeah, thank you for that. I I and I think that's important. And um and yeah, I don't want to sort of even in asking questions of you, I, I don't want to make it seem like that this is like a, an easy monster that one could see, as opposed to somebody who sort of blends into a community. Your reporting on this um, gets to learning about this accused doctor's life, work environments, former friends. Is it the same process reporting, Katie, where you literally will just blind cold call some of these people, explain what you're doing? Because what's interesting here to me, and again, I have not done much of this reporting, which is why I admire you so much. You are in, you you are asking them about someone, and they they know exactly why you're at some point right asking them. This is not a positive, glowing profile of said person. So how do you approach all this, knowing that? Um, you know, you're asking former colleagues, you're asking former neighbors, you're asking former whatever to to create a portrait of this person. But again, this is a portrait of a person who's been accused of some pretty heinous things. Yeah. And I think most people understand that. And listen, people are very leery um, about talking ever about anything like this or anything adjacent to this. So my batting average is, I mean, there's a reason I have to talk to a lot of people is because my batting average is very low on stories like this, right? You make 10 calls to get one piece of usable information. And, you know, I do present what I just told you to people, which is, Hey, listen, I do think it is important to report on this with nuance and texture and context because, People need to understand that this is this is not just like a sort of a straightforward one dimensional thing that, you know, there are complexities to this that, you know, it's helpful for people to know. And, and, you know, generally, I think people the people that do respond generally respond to the fact that, like, you care and that you want to get this right. And, you know, so I I think the people that do respond um, respond to those sort of like very human pleas of, you know, helping. Um, I I will say this story was uh, a fascinating has been because, you know, this is going to be ongoing and I imagine I'm going to be doing this reporting for quite some time, but this was challenging um, versus other stories that I've done. You know, he was a, you know, a youth and amateur hockey coach. So like, you know, especially when you're going back historically, there there aren't like a, a an abundance of rosters that are easily available. So, you know, one of the one of the ways right. that I got to like just cold calling a bunch of people that played for him 
I, you know, I found out where he was coaching. I would go to the local libraries of like those towns. I would pull the high school yearbooks and I'd go to like the hockey team photos and take a picture with my phone and then, you know, write down all the names and then, you know, look up on public records databases, the contacts for all those people. Um, and I'd always ask people like, you know, is there anyone else I should talk to and such? And um, I, he also had, you know, a Facebook profile that was public and so that I could see his interactions with people and I would reach out to him that way. Um, when it came to, you know, sort of his medical um, and physician contemporaries, you know, I went to the Wayne State Archives, which um, I got to give a shout out to Paul at the Wayne State uh, University, the Walter Ruther Library Archives. He was incredible. Um, I went through like all of his med school cl classmates. I will say this one really interesting component of this. And I had um, a couple of doctors who were super helpful to me in helping um, break down like, is this a normal part of an exam? Is this an anomaly is this appropriate is this above board some like i had two or three that were wonderful but i will say that i tried calling like a number of his med school classmates or people that he um worked closely with in medicine and they were very unhelpful and very i don't know whether they were just leery of the subject matter or there was an element of protectionism but i found that to be um an un expected obstacle in this reporting. Hmm. I want to ask you one sort of quick journalism question before we end with some broader stuff. The comments on this story were shut off on The Athletic. As the writer, how do you feel about that? And how do you feel about, should there be open comments for the kind of stories? So that I actually um, advocated for that in this case um, because you know, and we don't, it, it's kind of a case by case basis. Um, but, you know, this is, this is an ongoing investigation. Um, you know, I think some of the dynamics around the way male sexual abuse is covered and received can be somewhat fraught um, and sensitive. And I, I wanted to be really sensitive and um, cognizant of that. You know, people that were, coming forward with those stories to me um, were doing so in, in a way that it was still pretty fresh for them. And, um, you know, I, I, I did not feel like it was necessarily um, going to be productive to have a comment section uh, on this piece. Like we take a lot of different factors into that for every story, but um, we had some, I would say robust discussions about that. And, you know, it, I think there were good points to be made on either side um, and I would say generally, like our readership is is really respectful and really sophisticated and understanding some of the complex dynamics of sexual abuse. Um, but, you know, sometimes people aren't and that can be really triggering for people. So we also want to be mindful of that, too. Based on your reporting and from what you've um, done on these stories and you've now done many of them, um, how could parents of young athletes? Um, I don't know if it's sort of right to say protect their families here, but how, how how can parents of young athletes sort of at least be attuned to to some of the things that you have written about? Oh, that's really getting at the heart of some of my own neuroses as a parent. Um, because the that's reality true. is you can be pretty hypervigilant and still, you know, miss some 
miss things. I mean, the reality of the situation is um, that, you know, most people who fall into, you know, this category of, of people that I cover, which is, you know, like people that are accused or prosecuted for sexually abusing minors um, or anyone, you know, they're, they're often really adept manipulators and um, they manipulate both the people that they're preying on. And certainly this is true that they like groom family members as well. And, And so I do think that's an important component to keep in mind that, you know, in cases of sexual abuse, um, you know, family members are groomed too. And, and, and this is an incredible trauma, you know, for entire families, like the, the echo and ripples of trauma does not end with the victim. It, it really has such a, a harmful and insidious impact on, on entire families. Um, so I just say, you know, try to look for warning signs, try to, you know, be, really mindful about where your kid is and who they're with. But I mean, I I think you also have to empower your kid to be looking for those warning signs too, and to be, um, to feel comfortable to speak up if they see something or feel something that is untoward. You know, I have, I have two daughters um, and like, I kind of always joke with my husband that like, you know, it's, it, it is important, I guess, to some degree, like teach our girls like good manners and stuff. But like, I always say that, you know, I want my girls to practice saying thank you, but also practice saying fuck off. And I think that we should be teaching kids that, um, in equal measure. And, you know, you trust your instincts always. And I, I think learning to trust your instincts as a kid, um, is a bit like a muff- muscle that will atrophy. You don't do that. Um, so I try to have those conversations with my kids. And, um, you know, I think those are helpful conversations. I, my parents had those with me. I still remember those. Um, and, I, and I think just, you know, try to look out, try to look out for each other, try to look out for others. Tell people when you see something that doesn't feel right. Last one for me, Katie, is, um, and this, I've been reading a lot about this in Canada, where the, the government has um, has been funding um, youth sports programs to sort of look out for this stuff and to try to create safe environments. Um, from a U.S. perspective, what, does the government have a role here, Katie, in terms of like creating whatever might be created to make... Um, I don't know if nothing else, like the um, the way one could get to be a youth doctor, the way one could get to be a youth coach. I don't know if anything could be done because the country is so big. But I wonder if just do you see any you see any role in government or some kind of like government like organization? I mean, yeah, there has been some, you know, just just as there was, you know, parliamentary hearings in the Hockey Canada case, there were congressional um, hearings as it related to the Larry Nassar case. And there were some significant um, progress, I think, made at at a, you know, at a federal level, like um, in terms of oversight uh, when it comes with protecting youth athletes, you know, there's certainly, you know, the U.S. Center for Safe Sport, which is tasked with, you know, overseeing sexual abuse and misconduct under the U.S. OPC's umbrella. Um, though I would argue that I think um, <laughs> that organization is under in just an absolute deluge 
of complaints. Like, I don't think when they opened their doors, they had any idea of just how pervasive and rampant these issues were. And I, you know, I think they're significantly backlogged and understaffed and, um, you know, I think the, the, the mechanism, I think there is now an acknowledgement of the need for oversight and, you know, for there to be some level of, of federal, um, mechanisms in place and guardrails to protect against these things and to pass meaningful legislation that, um, you know, helps in these areas, but I think there's still quite a ways to go. Is there anything you wanted to add, Katie, before, uh, before I let you go? Yeah. I mean, I, it, you know, one of the things I always like stress is, especially in a case like this, I, I do think that male sexual abuse is often, uh, underreported and, um, you know, underappreciated in general in, in the way that we cover sexual abuse in sports. I mean, I encounter it quite a bit and, and that might be because, you know, I've, I've covered hockey for a long time and I've covered a decent amount of cases of sexual abuse and of, of men in sports and in hockey. Um, you know, I think the most offsided statistic is that um, one in six males will encounter sexual abuse before the age of 18. And I think there's even some skepticism that that um, is is truly reflective of how common and pervasive it is. So I I always do try to remind people of that um, because I don't, I don't think people quite understand how common it is. Um, And I will say that, you know, I'm always heartened. This work can be like really emotionally draining and um, kind of depressing and sobering, but it is almost always like affirming in some way too, because um you know, for as many people that you can, you can scrutinize and criticize for a lack of action or negligence in these areas. Um, you know, there are almost always people who are willing to speak up and, and, and do really courageous things, even at great personal costs, simply because they feel like it's the right thing to do and they might help others. So that always just, you know, affirms my faith in humanity. And, and that certainly has been the case here. Katie Strang is an investigative reporter with The Athletic. Her piece uh, this week is on um, Zvi Leverin, a doctor who's accused of sexually assaulting multiple hockey players in the Detroit suburbs. As Katie said, she's going to be following the, this case probably throughout, and I imagine we'll be doing more reporting on it. It's it's absolutely uh, worth your time if you haven't re- read it and if you subscribe to The Athletic, because obviously though it's one story about um, – this particular doctor it's it's really reflective of a larger story that's obviously happening in youth sports around north america katie as always uh it's great to catch up with you um thank you for your work and um and i hope uh, we see each other in person soon thanks for uh, joining me today on the sports media podcast thanks for having me all right back in the studio my thanks to austin carp chat finn and katie strang as always for their insights in the conversation. Um, particularly Austin and Chad, thank you for coming on real quick uh, so we can turn this around same day. If you like these kind of podcasts, leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Previous podcast, Kevin Burkhart and Greg Olson, speaking of the big conversation we had today. Lindsey Jones of The Ringer, Nikki Jabala of The Washington Post on covering the biggest NFL game. Susan Slusser remembered her friend Gwen Knapp, had Jeff Zimbalis on his uh, docuseries Super League, The War for Football, which was excellent. Uh, Al Michaels was on this podcast on January 11th. 
uh, Tara Sloan, Stephen Brunt, uh, two very preeminent Canadian voices. Uh, there should be you know, Malik Andrews, Kendra Andrews not too long ago. Head down the list of uh, the archives. There should be some stuff that uh, you'll appreciate and uh, should still be fairly evergreen. want to thank Chad, Finn, Austin Carp, Katie Strang again for coming on. Thanks as always to Patrick Antonetti for his hard work. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everybody at Cage 13 for their support. And we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.